You're listening to The Bloodsucking Feminists, your number one Kiwi Scottish podcast focused on the three Fs, fangs, feminism, and fangirling. I'm Catherine. And I'm Kelly. And you're listening to episode 21, We Legit Cried, or The Silver Kiss by Annette Curtis-Klaus. We did, guys. We're not kidding. We legit cried. I mean, I'm not proud of this. I tweet. I tweeted out that I cried, and then you sort of cynically tweeted me to say, "Wait, really?" And then I got a message from you last night saying, "I cried." <laughs> it's like, ha! You totally got it. I'd read it before as well, and I didn't cry the first time, but I did this time. So I don't know what's going on with me. But I mean, it's a very serviceable novel. It's like a you know three three and a half maybe very nineties YA and then the last couple of pages it just grabs you around the heart and squeezes until you cry it squeezes out the tears. Oh, it's an incredibly effective novel. It's a very simply written piece. It's incredibly nineteen ninety in terms of its place in the genre, in terms of its style, uh, in terms of its take on you know, a, a teen story with supernatural elements. And then you get to that ending, and it's like, oh my god, my eyes are leaking. What's going on? How did this happen? <laughs> it does one thing, and it does does it well, really. Oh god, it is so effective, and I just was floored by it in a way that I wasn't expecting at all. So, curse you, book. <laughs> but I'm excited to talk about this because, not just because it made us cry, because we're you know, like that. But it is such a fascinating relic of its time and a huge marker for what would follow in terms of vampire fiction and young adult focused literature. It's almost like we're YA archaeologists. <laughs> we're going back and discovering things that people have no idea about. I think people have a idea of this one for I, I don't think this is a an unknown property amongst people who are you know, big fans of this genre particularly because it did get a re-release when twilight came along but also because annette curtis klaus wrote blood and chocolate which is her werewolf novel which is probably more well known amongst readers and also had a terrible movie made out of it starring hugh dancy who's lovely but has terrible taste in movies that's probably the reason why people know about it because it's the hugh dancy werewolf novel yeah, if you've read any Hannibal fanfiction, you will know that one. <laughs> it appears quite a lot in crossovers, actually. Really? Oh, yeah. People are writing crossover Hannibal fanfiction with his character Doctor Strange and Hugh Dancy's character in Blood and Chocolate. I'm hugely impressed. So there'll be some crossovers with Fifty Shades Darker anytime soon? I'm hoping so, because I'm not watching that terrible film. <laughs> It'll be nice to see Hugh Dancy get the chance to be the terrible psychiatrist for a change. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're not familiar, The Silver Kiss by Annette Curtis-Klaus is a young adult novel first released in 1990, uh, according to the Inside Flap. There are two various dates given on the internet. Uh, one's 1990, one's 92. I'm going to go with the bit inside the book that says published in 1990 rather than Wikipedia because sometimes Wikipedia does get stuff wrong. It's the story of Zoe, uh, a young girl whose mother is dying of cancer, and while she's been left pretty alone, she encounters a vampire, Simon. It's very much a product of its time, like all YA novels of the period. It's very slim. It's only about 46,000 words. I don't know if it includes the two short stories that the re-release post-Twilight included, but either way, it's still really, really skinny. At the time it was published, it was one of the very, very few vampire novels, especially in the YA genre, preceded by a 60s novel called The Shiny Narrow Grin, which the author talks about in the introduction, is the, the book that got her into vampires, and uh, the Dark Angel series by Meredith Ann Pierce back in the 80s. Silver Kiss would be followed by the first book in the Vampire Diaries original quartet, The Awakening, which is 1991, They'd be followed by the Rissa series, LJ Smith's other vampire series, the Nightworld series. Uh, there'd be Christopher Pike's The Last Vampire, various standalones that were all part of the big YA horror boom of the early 90s, especially driven by Point Horror series. And then, of course, by the time you get to 2005, Twilight comes along, 
changes the game massively, both on the vampire side and the young adult fiction side, and the Silver Kiss gets a re-release. Complete with black, red, and white cover. Like, everything. <laughs> everything. No, seriously, everything got it, guys. Even Anne Rice's books got it. You know, and Anne Rice didn't really need help with the sales, as far as we know. I mean, the black, red, and white colour scheme does naturally work for vampire novels. The Silver Kiss cover is quite nice. Uh, the Bloodline cover by Kate Carey is quite nice. Even the Anne Rice ones aren't the most horrible Anne Rice covers I've seen. It's just they're all running off on Twilight, which sucks. <laughs> it, it's hard to ignore. It's also worth noting. <laughs> it is worth noting as well. Uh, speaking of Anne Rice, uh, the Silver Kiss comes out in 1998, and that is really Anne Rice in her prime and in her most potent popularity. The fourth uh, Vampire Chronicles novel, Tale the Body Thief, comes out soon after. This is when that series is really at its most prescient, and it's also a period where uh, horror fiction uh, in general is doing quite well. Oh, and also um, Poppy Z. Bright's first novel comes out at this time, which is uh, Lost Souls, another vampire novel. So you have this interesting kind of bubble of what's going on in horror fiction and vampire fiction at that time. It's not only doing well critically, it's doing well commercially. So if you look at the following year in film, for instance, the 10 highest grossing films of the year, the Cape Fear remake is in there, The Silence of the Lambs is in there, and so is The Addams Family. So there's certainly a hunger for this kind of story, um, or that that and that kind of aesthetic, and the Silver Kiss really fits into that aesthetic. And remember, Bram Stoker's Dracula, the film comes out in '92. There's the interview with the vampire film a couple of years later. There's a big sort of gothic horror, or even just pulpy horror vibe going on. And as I said, it comes up this was the big trend in young adult fiction that pulpy horror. Diane Ho's Nightmare Hall, um, a whole lot of R.L. Stein, Richie Tankers, Lee Cusick, Carolyn B. Cooney, Christopher Pike, uh, the incredibly named D.E. Atkins. And of course, L.J. Smith's Forbidden Game trilogy is included under that point horror publishing imprint. Early 90s, mid 90s, teenagers really love their, their pulpy horror and slasher type stuff. Which, if you think about what movies were big with teenagers then, also makes a lot of sense. And also makes sense in terms of what what their parents were probably reading and watching as well. Uh, the Silver Kiss precedes the boom of urban fantasy and paranormal romance that would come to dominate uh, vampire fiction for a good 20 years, certainly tying into when Twilight became the, the worldwide phenomenon that it did. Laurel K. Hamilton starts writing about three years after The Silver Kiss. Charlene Harris takes about another 10 years or so to get there. But there's certainly a lineage being established. So with all of that in mind, you then get to the beginning of the 90s and you get The Silver Kiss. And it's... I mean, like you said, it's a very simple novel with a very simple presence. It's, it reminds me a lot of um, old school or almost Victorian era uh, paranormal stories where the paranormal element is really a very obvious stand-in for something else. In this case, you know, it is that most obvious of vampire metaphors, which is vampirism as a stand-in for death, for the fear of death, fear of the unknown. Yes, Zoe is trying to deal with the impending death of her mother from cancer, and a dead man, a bringer of death, literally comes into her life and talks to her about death. I mean, what I ended up thinking about a lot was, um, so there's um, a Libba Bray's novel, Going Bovine, which is probably my favourite YA. The basic premise of that story, the basic message of that book is, you're going to die, and it's okay because everyone's going to die. And I think that's pretty much the message of the Silver Kiss. And that is, you know, a terrifying message, but it's also one that has, for um, Simon, the vampire in the story, that is a comfort that he is seeking. Death is natural. Zoe is afraid of this natural path, and Simon has lived his life unnaturally avoiding death, and yet he craves it. We've seen it, you see a lot of that in vampire fiction, particularly uh, teen vampire fiction, the... Uh, 
the, the self-loathing immortal. I mean, look at Edward Cullen, who hates himself more than anyone could ever hate him. And we tried. We really did try, Edward. Until he gets laid. Yeah, until he gets laid. Who'd have thought? But you, that's what I'm saying. You see that a lot. It's not just, oh, I'm so lonely and I'm struck with the ennui of my immortality, but it's fixed by usually a woman. It's not a genre which you see very often the other way around. No, male vampire things tend to be kill, 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 blood, blood, blood. Oh, look, a naked lady that I'm going to kill. <laughs> Taking all the women. Making them all naked and dead. <laughs> ah, coming over here, taking our houses, taking our blood. But that is something, you know, you see so often and it ends up being ultimately a surprise to go back and read the book that arguably could have started it all and see that it doesn't take that route because spoiler alert he dies and he chooses that and it's really emotionally hard I mean we're rushing ahead we will talk about that later but I do think establishing the way that it subverts those expectations is is important because we read a lot of these books I mean we've read a pretty sizable chunk of the the paranormal romance vampire YA boom of 2007 to about 2014, right? Yes. <laughs> That's pretty fair to say, yeah. I mean, we we consumed a lot of it and we got very, very used to the trope of the, you know, oh, it's, you know, my life is so hard, I don't want to live forever. And then, oh, wow, look at this chick. We're simplifying it a little bit, but... Immortality is bearable when it's with you. Yeah, basically. You know, and there's nothing more romantic than the other the human, usually the woman, giving up normalcy and the completion of life in order to live forever in this kind of um, convoluted harmony. So when you actually get the chance to experience uh, a story that accepts the finality of death and doesn't and, and it, it doesn't paint it as good but it doesn't paint the inevitability of that as something to avoid indeed in, avoiding it is something that causes just as much pain being unable to get to death is a truly painful act so seeing that after you've been reading this you know pretty decent little book that's clearly intended for a younger audience and then it just kicks you in the face with that. It's so different from all the YA books that, well, most of them that generally followed. I mean, the early 90s vampire books definitely had more of an emphasis on the horror than the later ones would do. Uh, the later ones like Twilight, uh, the ones that followed Twilight used the vampirism as a vehicle for making a romance more difficult and tragic. Um, but with the idea of we can be together forever, quite literally. Earlier books like, well, Silvercus, early L.J. Smith, uh, even Christopher Pike's The Last Vampire and things like that, there was a bit more of a willingness to have the tragic, realistic ending, or at least an attempt to do that. Spoiler alert for the original Vampire Diaries series, um, back when it was a trilogy, it ended with Elena's death. And the fourth book is mostly Bonnie and the for tall brothers dealing with the fallout from that and then she comes back in the last chapter and it's everyone's like what so i wonder how much of that is publisher mandated because the vampire diaries was uh, an alloy production so she was writing for hire the later vampire books with the night world tend to be a bit more ambiguous you know even the happy endings aren't exactly perfectly happy there's one example of two soulmates walking away from each other because they're not in the right place to be together because one's an asshole vampire and the other one isn't. <laughs> Having read all the stuff later, it is a shock to for someone. It almost feels like a really risky move, but because this was predates all of it, it, it wouldn't have been as such. It, it feels much more, if you look at it from its time period, it's much more traditional. But when you read it in the wake of everything post-Twilight, it feels really strange and out of place and really risky. Like I wonder why, if that's not part of why it not 
really mentioned a lot in vampire canon in the young adult sector was it just not that popular the the lack of emphasis on the romance side of things there is a romance but it's not you know your super epic romance a la twilight or all of the other bestsellers the romance is just incidental not the point yeah, I am fascinated to um, see what the reactions were from the Twilight fans who picked up this book when it got the reissued cover <laughs> and then got to that ending. Because you know if this thing had been written at the time Twilight came out and Ed Curtis Klaus's agent would have been pushing for her to change the ending because we want to get a free book deal out of this. <laughs> yes. be a lot longer for starters and there'd be a lot more kissing. I mean, there's kissing in the book. It's a kissing, it's a kissing book. <laughs> But it's not a romance, that's the thing. It's a book with romantic elements, but it's not a romance because it doesn't end with a happy ending. Are we going into this discussion, are we? Important distinction in the world. <laughs> it's an important distinction to make. Generally defined by romance readers, a romance novel is a book with a happy ending. You can call it a romantic drama if you want. I wouldn't even necessarily think of it as a romance. But I wouldn't even necessarily think of it as a romantic story because I don't think the romance is the central focus or, you know, the thing that Annette Curtis Klaus really cares about. And I don't think it's even the thing that Zoe necessarily cares about or Simon. I think they do care about each other, but it's more because they provide each other with an escape from the things that they are desperately trying to hide from. Nobody trusts, you know, it seems like no one in Zoe's family trusts her to deal with the difficulty of losing her mum and they're probably right on that front as she then later kind of admits to herself so she wants to find someone who will talk to her about death like an adult and it just so happens to be this guy who basically cannot talk to anyone else except his cat and that doesn't end well for the cat oh not the cat that was, that was sad too but I like cats I don't know oh yeah dead animals in this book as well guys if you get really sad about dogs dying in fiction, then don't go with this one. <laughs> yeah, this is one of those supernatural stories, the very classic ones where the girl brushes up against the supernatural for a very brief period and comes out the other side changed as a metaphor for going through um, making that passage into semi-adulthood. Like Labyrinth, where she realises, hey, she's not the only the centre of the world and that it's time for her to do a little bit of growing up. Not all of it, but some. Like Laura's encounter with Carmilla, brushing up against that and then coming out the other side changed. In this case, Zoe has brushed up against the supernatural and come out a little bit more ready to deal with all the losses that she's going to experience and knowing there's a little bit more to life and death than the complete shutout she's been getting by other people. And that's a remarkably sophisticated message for a book that is relatively innocuous for most of its read. I mean, it's good, but it is not groundbreaking. It is the kind of book that you usually, if it didn't have that ending, I think you would just kind of read it and go, okay. Story. And you just move on. Yeah, it's a sort of a very solid three, three and a half, you know. It's good. I, I sort of, you know, I probably would like it more if I was a, a teenager or if I weren't so numbed to vampire fiction in general. <laughs> but then it hits you in the last couple of pages and it's just like, this is a five, this is a five, and you're going to cry because it's a five. <laughs> I mean, it's not wrong. And then you cry. Are you going to cry again? Not yet. <laughs> I'm not going to cry. It's very interesting because... There's a lot in here that you do see in later young adult fiction. The isolated teenager with way too much independence, yet not enough actual independence. It's more like she's just being forgotten by her parents and her friends and everything. See the Bella, the whatever girl from the Maggie Stefano werewolf leaking womb books. Um, <laughs> I still can't forget that line. <laughs> but I do think that I will give I will give credit to Chris on that front because, you know, it is something that is acknowledged in universe as not being normal. Yeah. It is justified, but it is not the norm. You know, grief completely throws your life out of whack and no how hard you no hard no no matter how hard you try to fight to keep things 
quote-unquote normal, it's not going to happen. There will always be that bubbling resentment under the skin. And for Zoe, that resentment is the feeling infantilized and shoved out of her own family, like, and being feeling like she is a liability. That's not what her parents intended for her, but they can't, she can't help but feel that. And, you know, that is a mistake that they make. But it's a mistake that a lot of people make when they're going through mourning. Or, or going through the... Even, not even mourning, because she's not even... She doesn't even... You know, she is dying, and they have to prepare for that. So you, in a way, they are mourning. Unlike later ones, this actually has an emotional and logical consistency to that lack of parental involvement. Her father is trying to deal with his making his wife comfortable, doesn't want to traumatise his daughter, but is inadvertently upsetting the daughter anyway. There is no win in this situation. When we do meet Zoe's mother, it's very unpleasant. You can tell it's very close to the end. He's trying to not upset both mother and daughter, but by keeping them apart so that they don't have to, so that Zoe doesn't have to bear witness to what's going on, it's making things worse for both parties. He's trying to do the right thing, but there's not really a right thing here. No, every route possible has a lot. Exactly. So he's trying to deal with the grief, but people aren't helping her deal with the grief. Her best friend is wrapped up in the bad news that she's going to be moving to Oregon to live with her father and Zoe's like trying to wrap her mind around losing somebody else and that person not caring about the trauma that Zoe's going through. I'm not saying that Lorraine is going through going through absolutely nothing because it's obviously a thing that she's grieving and dealing with in her own way but I can completely understand Zoe's egocentrism in this situation and why she's upset that people aren't worried about her. Because in the grand scheme of things, Zoe's pain is bad. I'm not trying to delegitimize Lorraine's upset at leaving, but Lorraine's mother is still going to be alive by Christmas. She's just going to be in a different state as opposed to dead and after a painful decline. Lorraine having to live with her father and the stepmother who isn't that great is kind of, on the, in the grand scheme of things right now, not something Zoe really cares about. She's upset that her friend seems to be abandoning her and doesn't want to talk about the thing that she wants to talk about. And I understand that Lorraine doesn't know what to say and isn't capable of helping deal with that grief. But again, on Zoe's end, all she's seeing is a complete rejection by somebody else who's leaving her. And yet it's also completely understandable from the reader's point of view because these two are 16-year-old girls and they are, I think, much more realistic in terms of their attitude and their experiences than you often see in a lot of um, of teen fiction, particularly vampire fiction, where they're intended or drawn to be much... Well, I'm so much more mature for my age, which is why I'm in love with this you know, 145-year-old man. Girls mature faster than boys. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, and here it is just, you know, it is really difficult to navigate the basic waters of friendship at any age, particularly that age, but then you have this huge complication of both of their lives are being thrown into upheaval, but in very different ways. And judging the priorities there and how to talk about it is difficult. And as difficult for the adults as well, as demonstrated by Zoe's dad. One of these things would be a massive strain on a friendship, but the two of them together, especially this is the nineteen this is nineteen ninety, so there's no Skype, there's no instant messenger, there's no emails, no Instagram, no nothing. So their separation is a lot more definite than what it would be today. I mean, right now, you're in Scotland and I'm in New Zealand and we're just happily chatting about vampires and young adult fiction. That is so far out of the the bounds of these characters' realities that moving to Oregon is like the end of the world. I'm sorry, Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, before you ask, the only car model mentioned is a Volvo. The draw is not, you know, she smells good or anything, but Simon senses the death and the loneliness around her, and it's a kindred spirit sort of thing. 
and she and, and him find someone actually willing to talk to her about death, about what she's going through and what she's feeling. His point of view on the matter may be a bit different from everybody else, but here's someone willing to actually engage with her on this issue that nobody else will. Sometimes the person that you really need is just the person that's there. When my grandmother was dying, like, in the same house last couple of days of her life, which is probably why I cried this time as opposed to the first time because I had been through that um, after I read it the first time. Um, I was on the phone to someone at a course I was taking and I just, they were asking something and I just said, I can't do this. My grandmother's like right directly below me in this house and just unloaded on this stranger, someone I would never have to talk to again. And I'm so sorry, strange lady. When it happens, it happens. And in this case, only one person was willing to listen and around, and it was Simon. In another story, he would be the, the other kid with secret cancer. And that's how he dies at the end. Like, I forgot to tell you, I had cancer too. Remember me as a poignant metaphor. <laughs> because my author was accused of writing too many Manny Pixie Dream Girls, and so he decided to prove it wasn't sexist by writing as a guy. <laughs> <laughs> Shade. Yeah, I, I thought that was where we were going anyway. Oh, well, well, of course it was. I will. I will say in in kudos to uh, Silver Kiss on this. The end scene. I think we should discuss it now before we start crying again. That ending, the finality of it. I mean, is really poignant. But also, he's still scared. He has made this decision to die, but it's still terrifying to him, and that's why he needs her there, because he doesn't want to be alone, because he's been alone for is it 300 years? Yeah, yeah he was a child during Cromwell's so era. So about 300, 300 odd years. The fun era. <laughs> yeah, he actually talks about how his mother was a very bright, funny, lively woman, who was absolutely crushed by the Cromwell era. For those unfamiliar with history, Cromwell was when all fun was eliminated. Christmas was cancelled. Literally, we're not kidding. Pretty much everything was cancelled. Um, you know, dancing was made illegal. Um, Beverly parties, drinking. You Americans think there's a war on Christmas? You ain't seen nothing. I get the feeling that a lot of really conservative Americans would be on Cromwell's side. Maybe not on the Christmas part, but on pretty much everything else. Yeah, until he cancelled Christmas. They're like, no, you can't cancel Christmas. I did find that interesting element, actually, regarding Simon's mum. But yeah, in terms of uh, of Simon's actual death, it's really powerful because he has accepted death for, the, for what it is and the importance of it and the peace that it will bring because 300 plus years of living, which requires you to kill, which requires you to be almost completely alone, to have to obey the sort of arbitrary, seemingly arbitrary series, you know, set of rules of being a vampire, which we'll get into later. And the only thing that's really driving you is that you need to kill your creepy child vampire brother because he's too into killing other people. And when he finally does that... Yeah, his existence and purpose has been wrapped around trying to stop his brother. When he finally does that, what is his life? Yeah, and it already makes quite clear that the existence that he was living for, you know, to kill his brother Christopher, was a pretty pathetic existence. It wasn't really life in that sense. You know, he didn't have, really have friends or anyone he communicates with or has any connection with. It's because of their food. He briefly has a nice cat, but, you know, cats go the way of all of us. So, you know, if you don't like dead pet scenes, don't read this book. He doesn't have anything to live for, and frankly, Zoe isn't enough. And she shouldn't be. And he doesn't want to... Cur and she shouldn't be. She shouldn't have to have that responsibility on her shoulders at 16. She's already got too much to deal with. There is also the point, a moment, where... This was the beat that I expected, reading the book. You know, She asks him, can you save my mum? And he says, no. Because she would still have the cancer in her system, and she would just be in pain all the time his reasoning he's not exactly sure how it works but the general gist is that the vampirism heals everything as it happens 
Like, so every bit of aging is immediately counteracted. Every injury is immediately counteracted. It doesn't go back and fix every, every bit of damage that has already been done. So her mother would be in a perpetual state of two months to live, which is torture. Horrifying. It's even more a state of aberration than what he's already feels he's living in. I mean, I completely understand Zoe asking the question. I would totally be, if I was six, hell, if I went out and my mother was dying and a vampire came along, I'd be like, so can we explore all the options? Yeah. Yeah. Not even for, even, not even for ourselves, but like a parent or something that we actually love and who loves us back. And she's of course angry at him for a little while when he says no. But not even necessarily angry at him. She's just, once again, in these situations, you're just angry at everything. You're angry that the world is making you make this shitty decision. Angry that the world dangles this little carrot in front of you only to reveal that everything inside it is poison. You know, she thinks, I may have a way to save my mother, and then it just turns out to be an even worse choice than letting her go. I think that's what makes the ending so much more poignant when you read the... Uh, the short story that comes on with it, because you do get to see life does go on. It's not easy. Zoe will get to grow up, and um, she goes to art school, is it? Yeah, she moves up and goes back to San Francisco, which is where um, Simon was with the cat, and also where her mother went to art school. So she's getting in touch with those people in a different way. Oh, we're going to cry. And also, the thing about his death is that it's not exactly spur of the moment, like, he asks her to show up around midnight and he has to go into the sunlight to fade away and he asks her to help him throw away his earth. He's the type of vampire that does need to sleep on his native earth. And by throwing it away, he is making sure that he can't go back, but he can't do that alone. And he doesn't want to be alone. And I'm crying. <laughs> <laughs> We legit cried. It's in the title. Yeah. <laughs> but seriously, how nice is it to have a self-contained vampire story in YA fiction? Yeah. I mean, there are self-contained vampires, but this one is just like, woo, woo. This one. This one should be way more well-known than it, than it is. Oh yeah. I think you know, we've been talking about the canon. We've been talking about the canon of vampire fiction and I think this definitely deserves a place in it particularly for what it stands for because it's so good at that yeah we we've been discussing what we would make as our list of you know important or vampire books you should read for various reasons that includes genre changes really interesting takes on it uh, anything with vampires and people of color and, and um, LGBT people to find vampires of color in fiction, as you've probably heard us lament many times. And doesn't have to be good, because we don't think Twilight is good, but you need to really read Twilight to understand what the hell happens with vampire fiction. Well, you don't really need yeah. to read the later half of the Laurel K. Hamilton books. The first ones you definitely would read. The moment it becomes whatever the hell it becomes, stop. And this one will be up there not only because of its place as one of the earliest of young adult vampire fiction novels, but for the ending, which is so different from most vampire novels now, and also just the emotional impact of it. Like, forget most of the book. Their ending alone, I see, argued, earns its place in, a, in the book, in the, in the vampire list. And I don't think you'd fight me on that, although I will fight the rest of you. <laughs> I need a heavier book though because this one wouldn't really do much damage if I try to hit somebody. I need to find like a hardcover Twilight Love and Life and Death pair novel and that would do it. Maybe a hardcover The Historian. <laughs> Ouch. I think we need to discuss the vampires of the story in terms of what kind of vampires they are. Because this is another element where the book is very old school. Yeah, we've already mentioned a few elements of the vampire canon that it uses. We mentioned that they have to sleep on their native earth. They aren't immediately killed by sunlight, but they're very weakened by it. People think that little child vampire Christopher is an albino and they coddle him and wrap him up and everything. Running water 
is not great for them to cross. There's a bit he can, he can cross it, but it's really uncomfortable. And mentions he was really really sick on the boat crossing over from the UK to America. I don't know if that means he was puking because I'm just imagining this vampire just like dry heaving the entire way, which is kind of hilarious. The religious symbols thing again, which is a pretty constant one. Any others? Oh, the wooden stake. But the wooden stake thing is kind of one that still sticks around. But the running water and uh, the native earth thing is one that's sort of been dropped by a lot of young adult fiction. Running Water was in the original Vampire Diaries books, but some of those things have been dropped by later ones because you're getting almost a telephone effect. People are basing the young adult vampire novels on previous young adult vampire novels, which may base their vampire novels on Twilight, and Stephanie Meyer had no clue what she was doing. (laughs) (laughs) But also vampire tropes have always been a grab bag for authors you know what do you need out of your story what is it that you want to do in particular and for a lot of uh, authors they want to make their vampires as convenient as possible mm-hmm. you know running water um an aversion to running water can make certain stories difficult you can't go to certain places you can't do certain things you can add sunlight as a way to you know aversion to the sunlight to create what's the word I'm looking for a danger zone or a safe zone depending on which character you're rooting for you can add tension that way that's because that's such a common one but you know you don't see very often some of the really obscure uh, ways to distract or get rid of a vampire including one of my absolute favourites which is that uh, vampires if they see lots of tied knots will have to really quickly try and untie them Yep, Uh, another classic is if you throw like seeds on the ground, they are compelled to count them, which may or may not be part of the reasoning behind count bomb count. (laughs) So awesome. I feel like this will count an end. (laughs) But but it is a nice tie-in when you think about it. There's all sorts of little things. Uh, The must require an invitation, which also is part of the silver kiss. Yeah, this is really, really old school. They even have a sort of a sparkling effect in the moonlight the older they get. So suck it, Twilight. You're not even that original. Well, well, that's also very Anne Rice as well. There is like an element of looking more statuesque and and like marble in the Anne Rice novels as well, especially as you get older. You're almost calcifying. So that's... It's kind of amazing that Stephanie Meyer... For all her not reading other vampire fiction, manages to still be unoriginal <laughs> with her stone and her sparkling. Well, it's amazing how much of these traits and tropes and ideas are just disseminated through the culture through osmosis, you know? Like the amount of people who can reference specific images in the Bram Stoker book or in the Bela Lugosi movie without actually having read or seen either of those things is, is pretty staggering. Thank you, The Simpsons. Yes, that as well. I will say, Bart Simpson's Dracula is probably my favourite segment on Treehouse of Horror. <laughs> well, it's very obviously a reference. Look at the Mr. Burns vam- uh, Dr- as Dracula costume. It's straight up out of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Complete with, like, you know, boob heads. The boob wig. Come on, I can't be the only one who sees that and thinks. <laughs> yes, I saw someone mention it once on, like, in the internet. I'm like, no, I can't unsee it. Get a look at that queer haircut. I heard that. There was a boy. <laughs> See, Simpsons references, we can get them in every episode. But I like the fact that Klaus keeps in those elements that do make basic living for Simon quite difficult. If you're limited in terms of how far you can go because travelling across running water will make you ill, you're going to stay relatively close to one space or you're going to have to do all your travelling from walking or hitchhiking or, you know, means of transport that won't... Ad- attract much attention to you he has a suitcase full of his native earth how difficult would that be trying to travel now with a tsa yeah but imagine if you lost your suitcase like just the basic elements of that are interesting yeah it's almost like the the christopher has um a a better idea because he's got the native earth tucked inside his teddy bear that he always clings to him no one's going to take a small child's teddy bear away or think anything of it not even when he's creepy albino child there's your message. Never trust children. No, never trust an albino child who is reading way above their grade level. 
Christopher himself is quite interesting. I mean, he isn't actually featured that much in the book. We, we, we hear about him more than we see him. And this is another one that ties back to your, you know, your vampire fiction lineage. You don't think child vampire without thinking Claudia. Yeah, let's talk about Christopher. So there are plenty of child vampires out there. Claudia, as you mentioned, uh, Babette, even in Elder Scrolls Skyrim, the baby monster, fetus, Loch Ness monster thing from Twilight. (laughs) Creepy robot baby. Oh god, don't, don't, it still haunts my nightmares. They, they tend to be quite obvious stand-ins for a lot of ideas, like Nessie, whatever her name is again, Renesmee, Carly, oh god, it's so terrible, but Renesmee in... Honestly, they should have just gone with Carly. Carly's not a bad name. Yeah, but it wouldn't have been unique enough, <laughs> said every 14-year-old writing fanfiction. Uh, but with, with Renesmee, you, that stand-in is very much of a... It's not even so much a stand-in for ideas of of youth or death, that you know, Renesmee is a stand-in for the ultimate fantasy of parenthood, which is where you don't have to do a goddamn thing. Yeah, it's, it's the fantasy of a parent who almost resented the children and the work that they required. This is valuable sexing time that I have to raise parenting this child. Yeah, a child that grows up twice as fast, is super independent, super intelligent, and will be raised by other people, so she's not even your problem. You get all the credit, none of the work. And Claudia, of course, is the metaphor for the child that is lost at a certain age, and thus is forever at that age. So it's interesting, like, I think um, uh, Breaking Dawn is almost an outmarker uh, in this situation, and where, you know, child vampires are usually justifiably so pretty horrifying. Uh, Renesmee is horrifying, but I don't think she's intended to by the offer. <laughs> like 90% of Twilight. It's very horrifying, but none of it's intended. So here with Christopher, Christopher is pretty pretty awful. I mean, And he's also actively malicious and enjoys it. Yeah, this is not a kid who lacks control like some other child vampires. This is a, a vampire who has his own preset method of hunting, which is to look like the, a lost little boy and ask a woman for help. And then he will bite her, drain her, and then slash her throat to hide the bite marks. There's premeditation and care to hide his what he's done. And misogyny, because he more likely than not goes after women. He's preying on this, this idea that women are naturally maternal and would look after a child, which I don't think is naturally a woman's thing. It's naturally a decent person thing. But here, you know, he's really ingrained with this idea that women are kind of scummy. And also, like a lot of other serial killers, he's killing a surrogate. Or at least like a lot of, a lot of other killers, he's killing a surrogate. Because when he killed his mother, he did a similar thing. She rejected him. He came back for her. She rejected him because it had been a number of years and he's still a creepy child. And because of that rejection, he killed her in much the same way. And he's doing it. He's taking out his anger towards his mother again and again and again. Look, a serial killer with mother issues. How about that? Which, in a way, like, um, Lindsay Ellis talked about this in her Loose Cannon episode on Jack the Ripper, is just how often takes on that story are just boiled down to, well, the way that we can solve this case is by drawing conclusions that the real Jack the Ripper had a mother who was a prostitute and he was mad about this. The particular kind of horophobia and misogyny that's inherent within so much fiction that revolves around the um, you know, the, the, the male serial killer. There are exceptions, obviously. But how often have you read like a trashy crime novel where it's all pinned on the mother? Well, it goes full Norman Bates. Interesting you did bring up Jack the Ripper, though, because there was an off-handed sentence that we once again get Jack the Ripper was a vampire thing. In this case, it was Christopher, and he was doing his same routine with the, with the victims of Jack the Ripper. And since we know he's a creepy little son of a who likes to write letters, you never know about the letters being Christopher as well. Certainly would explain the spelling errors. But at least here we do see a, a, an actual background in the killing of the mother rather than just the assumption. And there is, you know, the rejection by his mother and then getting revenge on the family that rejected him. 
And also, you know, playing into the trope of I am the helpless young boy with, with an issue towards women. Who do I think is going to be the easiest to pick up and kill? Who's going to trust me the most? I will say, I do think that Christopher is one of the more sketchily drawn elements of the book. That does definitely feel like, well, I need this to be a vampire story, so I need some kind of complex, so I'll put that in there. It's still interesting, but the focus is really Zoe's journey. It is not so much on um, on Christopher or even Simon's journey with Christopher. The thing I thought was quite interesting was that we normally get child vamp when we normally get child vampires with siblings, they tend to be the youngest sibling. You know, they're all turned at the same time. It's quite a shock to Zoe and the reader to learn that the family portrait of Simon's family, Christopher is a child and Simon is a, is the baby. Christopher is his older brother. It's that wrong inversion of the sibling relationship. Yeah, and Christopher deliberately waits until Simon is older to, to go after him because he needs him. He needs him to be that adult, basically. Because the guy who turned him is a dick. So we've got a German von German sort of vampire who becomes quite attached to a young human boy. And we're not sure what exactly is the reasoning behind that, is it? Is it just because he clearly took the boy away to be turned as a child? Was Christopher um, victim of a pedophilic vampire or was this this was the idea of the making a little perfect family? Simon's and Christopher's mother does comment that German, von German, the vampire, really should marry and settle down if he loves children so much. Because he was always, you know, telling stories to Christopher and petting his hair and like a friend who is, who loves kids but doesn't have any of their own yet. But considering the hatred of German, von German, the vampire, it's not the biggest leap to conclude that it wasn't exactly a paternal motivation. Yeah, I think that's when we were supposed to really just sort of draw your own conclusions. It could be either and neither is exactly wonderful. But certainly by the time Simon is 19, whatever has been happening to Christopher has been enough to turn him really, really nasty and cold and calculating. Because he arranges for the vampire to turn Simon, or at least to abduct Simon, and then Christopher turns Simon, and feeding off of Simon would then kill the vampire. Which is an interesting thing, because a lot of vampire stories have feeding off of your own kind as a taboo, especially in the young adult section. But here it's a, a lethal thing. Normally it's just a vampires don't do this. Uh, in the in the wake of Silvercus in the Nightworld series, but going back to L.J. Smith, uh, it, it's made explicit that vampires do not feed off each other, but there's no explicit fatal element to it, whereas it is here. Um, other vampire stories, again, you know, you don't feed off the dead or because that is fatal to you, or at least really incapacitates you, as we saw with Interview, etc. But in Young Adult, it's a, it's not really a thing that is included, which again makes this so different. This is the type of story that should have been much more of a definer for Young Adult vampire fiction, but it wasn't. It, I don't know if it got enough of a push, or it was the wrong time, or just so many other people were writing their own vampire stories at the same time, none of them turned out to be super defining. Because even amongst going back to L.G. Smith, again, uh, her vampires were different based on whether it was the one produced by Alloy Entertainment, the Vampire Diaries, or the ones from her own night world under her own creation. Um, I mean, this is a thing that's quite common in a lot of vampire fiction and it comes up so often I mean Twilight is the one that we talk about and just the way that it talks about sort of the uh, romanticising of death particularly in New Moon where oh Belle is so sad and alone and she's getting so old at 18 and she wants to die because Edward's not there and how sort of really irresponsible that is from a storytelling point of view and then you also have to remember that you know these are vampires it's obviously when they're not real um, and too death means a different thing within that context of that genre but also vampires aren't real but they are a stand-in for very real human ideas so simon wanting to die wanting to have the finality of death that has been denied for from him for over 300 years and it is portrayed sympathetically and, and as an understandable act 
do you think it's romantic in this portrayal? I mean, I I don't necessarily know. Because you are supposed to be, on some level, happy for that closure. And it is a hard thing that he, you know, makes a 16-year-old girl stay with him to watch. Knowing full well that she's going to have to go through this again in a few months' time. If that. I admit, I was kind of like, dick move, Simon. You could at least stay with her through her mother's death and then just, you know, fade out and... Not, not the way he actually does. He doesn't burst into flames or anything, thank goodness, because wouldn't that be traumatic for Zoe? He just, <laughs> instead of fading into a moonbeam... Oh, look, there's another detail that we always said. He and Christopher can turn into mist, another classic. Uh, turn to mist and bats, another classic. He, instead of becoming a moonbeam, he becomes a sunbeam and just sort of fades away rather than the horribly traumatic bursting into flames. But we need to compare it not to any other vampire story, but to uh, Zoe's mother, who, again, is getting ready for death. Simon describes vampirism being in that eternal state of where you were. With a cancer patient, the cancer would still be there, but they would be constantly healing and staying in that state. He's basically been living in the I-need-to-die-I'm-going-to-die I'm state for 300 years. He's finally reached a state where he can sort of accept it, much like Zoe's mother is, if not if she's not there, she's getting very close to that acceptance of death. But in the last moments, there's still that fear. You know, I don't want to go, but I am okay with going. I'm ready to go. Yeah. So I don't think we should look at this from the point of view of the vampire suicide, but of the, the getting ready to die of a terminal illness. That makes sense. That is paralleled through throughout the themes of the book. You know, like a lot of people with um, a terminal illness, you know, hanging on for that completion of the one thing. In this case, it was stopping Christopher. Now that that's gone, he can let go. In this case, he doesn't actually have to let go, but he does. You know, there's nothing really stopping him from actually just going out and finally enjoying his life, except his own choice. He's lived his entire well he's been a vampire for so long and has been recognizing it as horrible and unnatural the entire time but he probably would have killed himself much earlier had it not been for christopher yeah he has a damn reason to be steeped in self-loathing edward because that was one of the things i hated about twilight is just so much of it's supposed to be about the ennui of eternal life but his life is fucking awesome (laughs) He can go to any university he wants to and seems to have gone to them all. He can get educated for you know eternity. He can see the world. He can s- spend money willy-nilly. And it's just like, oh no, I'm s- it's the poor little rich boy thing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, Edward has a family that loves him and cares for him. And we don't get that with Simon because Simon is alone and has nowhere, you know, no home, no connections, the, the family he has is, you know, not really the family that he wants. He's he's stuck with it more than anything else. He's tied down to this world that he can barely control, these ideas that he can't control. And it's hor- horrific for him. And even this one person who provides him with this moment of solace, someone whose company he, you know, really appreciates, it's not the same. It's not enough, nor should it be enough. She should never have to have that expectation on her shoulders because she's a teenage girl who has her life ahead of her, whether she knows that or not. Simon has been alone pretty much for 300 years, well, more than 300 years, his one constant being the need to stop his brother from killing. His only family is a monster and he can't, and he's being bested by him. He's been alone. He's been skimming off uh, other people but not forming any attachments. That's why in the Summer of Love short story in the beginning, the one where he, you know, finds a cat and the cat for some reason wants to be his friend and he's, like, quite shocked by it. When he actually loses the cat, it's the pretty much the end of the world for him because he's finally got an attachment to something and something cares about him. And that's the, the power of that is insane. I'm crying again. <laughs> Don't start, you'll make me cry. But, the, you know, this is a vampire who has no companions, no connections, no roots. The closest thing he had to something that loved him unconditionally 
is the cat, is Grimalkin. And that didn't last long and it was a traumatic end. And he no doubt still blames himself for it. And even his first interactions with Zoe are not exactly dramatically romantic. He 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 notices that she has big breasts and then he sort of, you know, laughs himself thinking, why do I still care about that? I'm like, well, good for you, Simon. You still got something in there that is very typical of straight teenage boy. But even then, he still tr- still struggles to interact with her properly. He's too blunt about issues to do with death, and at times he almost comes across as very insensitive to Zoe when he's talking about death and what's going to happen to her mother and things like that. But even though it hurts, she's kind of she's still appreciative of it because hey, someone is at least trying to emotion with her. Even if it even if it sucks, somebody is paying attention to her and how she's feeling about this issue. Someone is not locking her out of this issue, of her own tragedy and her own grief. The, the thing I would say is, do read the book if you can get hold of it, because it's important in terms of the genre in a big way. If you've read any teen vampire fiction, if you've read any paranormal romance, if you devoured the vampire diaries as a kid, if you, you know, read Twilight with sort of inquisitive eyes, this is one to read because it does show the uh, foundations of the genre in its particular set ways, but it also gives you the opportunity to really experience the emotional kick that I think a lot of those books are sorely lacking. And come tell us if it made you cry too. Because we don't want to be alone on this front. We legit cried, yo! I think we sort of agree. It's very much a product of its time, but something we can still learn from. I wish more young adult and more adult vampire books actually would learn from this. Hell, I wish some um, modern young adult cancer books would learn from this. It's just, as I said before, if you really want a full kind of contextualising of the vampire genre as it pertains to the intersections of young adult fiction and romance, or at least romantic ideas and themes, I would you know, highly recommend this. Yeah, if you're especially sick of the post-Twilight young adult vampire fiction, or just even post-Twilight vampire fiction in general, this is definitely worth it, just for its more traditional gothic feel, the emotional kick of the ending, and a vampire story that has very little to influence it beyond the older classics. This is not, you know, a post-Twilight, post-Vampire Academy, post-Vampire Diaries, post-True Blood vampire book. This is something that precedes all of them and should have been more of a definer than it actually was. Plus, I think it's a book that should not be forgotten, especially in place in young adult supernatural fiction. Even with the Twilight copycat cover? Yeah, I mean, it's not a bad cover, you guys. It's just one of those things you see it and go, really? Should, that, must we? Must we? Make sure you do have some tissues, especially if you don't like animals dying, sadly. Yeah, we're going to go and cry <laughs> after this. Um, that's it for the Bloodsucking Feminist this month. Uh, thank you for listening. Next month we will be going back to a Dracula film because, well, Dracula films are everywhere. Uh, we'll be doing Dracula Untold, which is the one that was supposed to start the new Universal Monsters series, but didn't. Uh, I think that we will be going back to ranting about Universal Pictures, which seems to be becoming a bit of a trend with us. And by us, I mean mostly you, Kaylee. Look, you got to have hobbies. So just a movie, nice and quick, nice and easy. Probably be doing a bit of background reading on the origins of Vlad the Impaler. Uh, we'll see if this is one of the worst Dracula films in recent memories that we've watched. Uh, anything else you'd like to add before we go? I legit cried you. We're going to go away and cry now. If you need us, we will be at fangmail at bloodsuckingfeminist.com. That's fangmail with a G because we are going to cry. We are on Twitter at bloodsuckingfem. Uh, insert your own crying joke there. We are also available on 
uh, Facebook. Uh, we also hang around at bibliodays.com and on our own Twitters. I'm sure you can find us. And we will see you next month having watched Dracula Untold and with plenty to rant about, I assume. Until then, don't let the vampires spite, unless that's your thing. Now go become a sunbeam. <laughs>